You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. chapter 21. Today's message is entitled, The Insanity of God's Protection. The Insanity of God's Protection. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 21 mostly, uh, but we're going to be hopping around a little bit to some of the Psalms that are uh, working in in conjunction to this. By the word insanity, you'll see why that's going to be an important word here today, but I don't mean it to be disrespectful to God in that he's, uh, he's insane or something. I, I don't want to put any negative connotation on that to be taken from this word insane, uh, but I mean insane, insane like very colloquially, very simply, very, very um, common tongue kind of language. When, when I say something is insane, usually I'm watching some sports event or something, dude, that was insane, right? We say that, right? The word insane uh, is really incredible. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's, it's wow, right? That was insane, right? And yet it also is going to have a double meaning today for David is going to feign or pretend insanity today. It's a very obscure passage in the Old Testament. I'm excited to go through it because I was talking to some people this week about this chapter and this passage. And they were very unfamiliar with this passage. It's very strange. It's very unique. It's... um, probably unlike many other passages in the Bible. And so it's a very unique chapter, and I'm excited to get into it because there's some things that we can draw out from it. But it is, God's protection is what we're going to be following today. God is going to be protected, his, he's going to be protecting his anointed one in some of the most insane and interesting and strange ways. He is going to be with David. It's not always so much where David is, but it's who is with him every step of the way. I think that's going to translate to your life as well. I don't know where all of you are or where you find yourself today, but the fact is that God is, will protect you. God will be with you. And as we follow him, we will learn to trust him no matter what place, no matter what place we find ourselves in. And so we're following really the protection that God is providing for his servant David, his chosen one. As he runs from Saul, as he's been fleeing for his life, we're going to find David at wit's end. David is coming to literally his, probably one of, you could say, the lowest points in his whole life. He's going to be coming today to this incredible moment that is uh, he has nowhere else to go. He doesn't know what to do. And maybe some of you have been there. You don't know what to do. You're at wit's end. You find yourself having nowhere else to turn. What do you do? Where do you go? What do you think? What, where is your faith in that moment? So we're going to be looking at kind of the historical narrative of what's going on in the story. And then we're going to be looking at David's journal, as I call it, where he writes a psalm regarding the very situations that we're reading about today. There's three or four Psalms, you could say, that he writes in conjunction with Psalm uh, 1 Samuel 21. So we'll be looking at some of those as well. And we're going to be following, remember, we've been with David from the beginning, where he was called and anointed, where then he defeats Goliath. 
And then we go through situations where now Saul is angry at David's uh, power, his anointing. The, the kingdom is stripped from Saul and Saul goes after David, wants to kill him, tries killing him multiple times. Saul is then rendered helpless before the Spirit of God as he tries to come after David. He does nothing but falling on his face and praising God. We see that God gives Jonathan uh, to David as a friend to encourage him. We looked at friendship last week, Jonathan and David, and the unique bond that they had in the most difficult times that David can remember. And it really is experience. And then Jonathan has to leave to go back. And David now, we find himself still fleeing for his life. And he's on his own. And remember, he can't go home. His wife, Michael, uh, is, has helped him escape from his home because Saul sent assassins to his house to kill him in the night or in the morning. And uh, remember, Michael had to put a statue in the bed to pretend that it was David in the bed. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? And so all of this is leading us to this point in 1 Samuel 21. Where we see Samuel, uh, sorry, not Samuel, where we see David uh, running from the tent. He goes to the tent, and he goes to the city, and then he goes to the cave. A little bit later, we're going to throw up a graph later on for you uh, that's going to help describe this movement for us and get a big picture. But as we start, that's what I want you to keep in your mind. We're going to start at the tent, the tabernacle here. We're going to move to the city, and then we're going to end up in a cave. Okay, and this is where David is being uh, harassed and run after. So let's look at chapter 21. We're going to look at the first nine verses really to start, and then we'll look at the second step, second step here. Uh, chapter 21, 1 Samuel verse 1, And David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? This is going to start this very unique exchange between David and Ahimelech the high priest. They're kind of at odds and they're at tense with one another. They're not sure if they either one can be trusted because Saul has spies everywhere. And so they're in this awkward conversation here. David is on his own and desperate. He's hungry and he needs equipment. He needs, uh, he needs uh, defense and he needs help. And David goes to this tent, the tabernacle. And David said, verse 2, to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one say anything of the matter about which I send to you. And with which I have charged you, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So David seems to be kind of fabricating some sort of a story that's going on. And we'll get into that in a moment. Verse 4, the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, well, truly, women have been kept from us, and always when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, you could say are pure and clean, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy today? Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken away. Now, here's a little foreshadowing for next week. Verse 7, you'll see how this doesn't seem to make sense here, but next week's going to make sense. Now, a certain man from the servants of Saul was there and his name uh, uh, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. He's this incredibly evil person who's eavesdropping on the conversation between Ahimelech and David. Verse 8, and David said to Ahimelech, then uh, what, what else do you have here? Basically, he says, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? 
For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take that, take it, and there is none um, there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. He takes the sword of Goliath. So we're going to focus our first part of this message today on, on this part. Where he's in the tent. We're going to see King Saul as kind of the enemy being faced here. King Saul's chasing David. He, he, he needs supplies. And we're going to find out that God is going to supply him all his needs. And then we're going to find out ultimately David writes this Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good in this context. Ahimelech the priest, he is this unique character in that he has taken over the priestly duties in the current tabernacle at that time. If you remember, the tabernacle was destroyed by the Philistines. The ark was captured, but now they've re-kind of set up the worship of God and the ark of the covenant and the priestly duties. They've done that here in um, the city of Nob the city of Nob. And Ahimelech is, again, a curious character because he's related. It's his family line that gives him away. He's kind of to be trusted. He's not sure. For actually the father of David's high priest, Abiathar, son of Ahitub, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Some of you have been here the last couple of months. You know these names. It's important to note that this guy, Ahimelech, is from the family of Eli. Again, more foreshadowing. I'm going to try to get you to come back next week, right? This is how we do it. Uh, Because next week, you're going to find out why that's so important. Or you could even just read ahead during the sermon and find out why that's important. But don't do that. Wait, no, do that. I don't know. Listen today, right? But, but, but Eli's wickedness, if you recall, Eli's disobedience, the evil sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were judged. And there is a curse placed on that family line on Eli saying, your children, your family will not grow old and they will be wiped off the face of the earth, the Lord says. And so we'll see that by the evil hand of Saul and Doeg that this prophecy comes to fruition. It's this interesting thing we'll look at. But this is important because Ahimelech is one of them. And Ahimelech and David are kind of testing out the waters. You see that Ahimelech right in the beginning, verse 1, he's trembling when he sees David. He's not welcoming. He's not interested. He's, he's kind of unsure what's going on. There's a lot of talk around the town of, his, uh, of, uh, of the town these days of Saul and David and how they're at odds. And David fabricates some story of a sword. And in some ways, it almost seems like David's telling a white lie here. And you could say, well, he's telling a lie. Well, it does seem to be that way. And it seems like he's possibly doing this for maybe the right reasons, although he's doing something wrong. But here, he's doing it in a way that I think he's trying to protect Ahimelech from being tied to David and helping him. He's trying to make sure that, that Ahimelech doesn't know what's going on because he fears that, uh, that um, Saul may try to take out Ahimelech, which we'll see later on. And so I think he's trying to preserve Ahimelech and allow him to be, remain in a place of ignorance uh, but, but whatever happens here, the Bible doesn't always condemn or condone certain actions that we read in narrative in the history of the Bible. Often when we read things in the Old Testament, you're like, well, how does this guy have so many wives? How is that okay? Well, you'll see that the, the passage often describes a situation. It describes the historical detail of what took place, but it doesn't necessarily condone that action. And actually, you'll find out that through the situation, you'll see that it actually works its way out as what it thinks about it. And so it doesn't just pause here and say, David, you shouldn't do that. But it does go on and it'll explain what's going on. So David is growing here uh, more and more desperate, as I said. More and more desperate. He is uh, hungry. He's on his own. He is unarmed. 
those are situations when you're running on your own and and it's almost like one of those uh you know those movies that where people are trying to escape the government and they're trying to you know get a burner phone and try to all these things they can't talk to this person because they're going to be on cctv and all this stuff right it, it's literally like david is in a situation like that every he's not sure who he can trust he's not sure where he can go there is literally a spy doeg the edomite who's going to be overhearing this conversation who's going to later implicate ahimelech and david and so we're, we're going to find that this is, this is a really difficult situation. And so David comes to the place that he doesn't know where else to go. He can't go home. He can't go to Jonathan. He doesn't know where to go. So he goes to the tent of meeting. He goes to the tabernacle. He goes to the place that he finds that maybe here is where I can find food. Maybe the Lord will hear me here. And, and he actually seems to break the law of God. You see, he actually takes bread that was reserved for only the priests. He's given holy bread. Ahimelech must be like, I, I, this isn't a drive through We're not like, you know, come in here when you're hungry and you get whatever food we have nearby. This is the tent, the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant is present here. The worship of God takes place. These are the holy bread that is given to God in worship of him to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It's presented and then once a week on the Sabbath, it's replaced and removed. And then that bread is taken and the uh, priests and their sons may take of that bread, but no one else. So you don't just casually come in and take this bread because it's left over or something. This is a very serious thing. It's a breach of law. Le- Leviticus 24 says that if you take, uh, you shall bake these 12 loaves, you'll set them in two piles, six on a pile, uh, on the table that is pure gold before the Lord. Every Sabbath they shall be arranged. Uh, and then on Aaron and his sons, they shall eat it in a holy place, since for by him it's a holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. This is in Leviticus 24. It literally details where they're placed, how they're placed uh, in the tabernacle, on what they're supposed to, I mean, it's detailed. The point I'm making is that this is something that David would have known. He would have known what's going on here. And that Ahimelech is, is rightfully so saying, this is not common bread. If I give you this bread, this is holy bread. And so what we have here is David taking of this bread for himself. It's a, it's a fantastic symbol and an image of, of what's David's role and the future that we see David stepping into. And it also foreshadows, guess who? Jesus Christ, you know? Isn't that how all of this seems to work? David is the start of what we would call this priestly king role. He's foreshadowing the merge of these two separate offices, the priest and the king. Samuel kind of started this as well. Samuel is this judge, and yet he is also a priest of Israel. David, in a much greater way, starts to be now a king for the first time, anointed. Uh, Priests were only anointed before this. Now Saul and David are anointed, and now they're a king, and David starts to step into this role of being a priest as well. For really, we can even look back into the Garden of Eden as mankind, we are called to even be in this similar role, as we are these kind of royal priestly kings ruling on earth as God's ambassadors in the Garden of Eden. We, we were called to have dominion over the earth, to rule and to reign here on this earth. And yet, through sin, we desired to rule apart from God's rule. We didn't want to be an understudy of God. We didn't want to rule on his behalf. We wanted to define good and evil, and, and we wanted to have the knowledge of all of this on our own. We wanted to be gods on our, on our own, and so we desired to be our own kings. And so we have allowed sin to enter the world, and, and now we need a redeemer. We need a representative to save us on our behalf, be our kind of human uh, way to present. Uh, we need a new Adam to come before us, 
Redeemer, to restore our lost relationship. We talked about this in our study of Hebrews. Some of you remember this very interesting figure of Melchizedek. Melchizedek foreshadows this in many ways, this covenant blessing that he gives over Abraham for Melchizedek was the king of Salem, or Shalem, this word peace, which is the foretaste, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the king of Salem, uh, Melchizedek, was also known as the priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek is this figure who's the king of Salem, uh, really the future city of David, Jerusalem. And he's also a priest of the Most High God, and he extends a blessing upon Abraham and his people. Now that is continued here as we see David walking in a very priestly way. And David is also going to be the one who's anointed by God. He will be king. He takes of the bread reserved only for priests, probably unknowingly knowing the symbol that it would be. And then later on, we're going to see him dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, wearing a linen ephod that was only reserved for priests to wear. And he's wearing an ephod, worshiping God as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought up the hill and being put into the city of Jerusalem to preserve the worship there as the new city of God. And so we see David in this, operating in this two kinds of way. It's very significant. It's he's a king, and yet he's a priest. And it's this way where he's starting to exemplify or foreshadow a figure who would do this perfectly. For David did this in part and could not do this in whole. But it's in David's figuring, prefiguring of the person of Jesus Christ, who would perfectly fulfill these offices. As theologians would say, Jesus Christ fulfills perfectly the offices of prophet, priest, and king. For Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our savior. And we find Jesus exemplifies and embodies these things in fullness. For Jesus himself actually condones the activity of David taking of this bread. Some of you may be familiar with that. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself is accused of a similar situation. Jesus is hungry and desperate He's needing food, but it happens to be the Sabbath. He and his disciples take of grain. They take of bread, you could say, and they eat and they gather it on the Sabbath. They are condemned by the Pharisees and other people. And Jesus brings out this situation as an example. He says in Matthew 12, Jesus said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house and the tent of God and ate bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus says, we desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, see, this is almost a reference back to Saul's disobedience when he broke the law, when he disobeyed God and did what he wanted to do. How is it that Saul goes, uh, is condemned and David goes free? And I think some, there are many decisions here that need to be made as we talk about this, but one aspect of it is really here that God desires a heart that fears God and loves God over simple outward worship or outward adherence to laws and such. Hey, you can't do that, but the heart and of mercy is not there. You might keep the law outwardly like a Pharisee, but your heart is dead inside. See, David is free of guilt here because mercy is provided for him in this situation. He's in a time of desperate need. He's God's anointed one as well. And he's needing God to feed him and sustain him. And he comes to the place where he needs help and God provides it for him. For that mercy extends and is more important and, more and greater than adherence to a ceremonial law. Does that make sense? 
So we, so we see that Jesus here describes a similar situation for himself using David's predicament as a, in like manner. For really Jesus is the, the new David in so many ways. And so, so God supplies David, particularly here, with manna from heaven, you could say. As, as the bread is supplied and, and made and put into the tabernacle, that bread then is fed to the people of God, to Israel, and uh, to David in that need. And so we find that it's almost as if manna is coming down here in this way, feeding David. And so Saul and David, they have this kind of spat, this little challenge that we see between them. But I think what we've seen from the beginning is Saul and David, where Saul lacks the heart and the integrity of the inward life and maybe has the outward obedience or the outward extends of power and strength and height. And, and yet David lacks those things, but his inward purity, his inward heart, the aspect that God shines down his love and grace upon those who inwardly are alive. Those who are inwardly pure and desire him. And so, so that's what we see. What's ultimately this question that comes up over and over is what is in our heart? What's in your heart? God desires mercy not over perfect adherence and following sacrificial law. We are to value the heart of the matter over the letter of the law. He doesn't value simple pharisaical obedience and keeping of law. He wants you. He wants your heart. And when he has your heart and you give him your heart, he will, as the passage tells us, supply all your needs. He will supply your needs. The Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Do we believe that? Is our heart honestly believing that God is the one who supplies all my needs? He is the one who will give me my daily bread. He's the one who speaks and sees and knows. And I trust him with my life to supply my needs. Or are we anxiously worried and constantly trying to make things happen on our own? Or are we trusting God and serving him and walking in obedience that the Lord will supply our needs? The Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And he does. He feeds him. He sustains him. He supplies his needs. He feeds his stomach with bread. We all know what that's like to be hangry, <laughs> okay? The Lord knows as well, and he feeds David. And then he gives him something else that's also very interesting, right? What does he give him? The sword of Goliath. It's fascinating. We'll see that in a minute, but he takes the sword of Goliath probably as a reminder of God's past faithfulness, God's past victory. Now, God will continue to be with me like he was there against Goliath. He will be with me in this moment. I just wonder what David would have been thinking in that moment. Well, in some ways, we can find what David was thinking. Psalm 34 is one of those. There we find that he writes it in conjunction with Psalm uh, 1 Samuel 21. Psalm 34 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Is that not awesome? You, many of you heard that verse before, but what if you were hungry, you had been starving, and now you think to yourself, wow, this bread is amazing. Taste, oh taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 9 of Psalm 34, oh fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Isn't that awesome? Those who fear him have no lack. For the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It's just so encouraging, so encouraging to remind ourselves. Those who fear the Lord, Psalm 3410, will lack no good thing. 
Maybe we don't always know what good thing it is that we need, but the Lord knows. So we go to him and we bring our needs to him. Lord, I, I think I need this. Help me. I don't know. Would you give me what I need? Give me my daily bread. The Lord will supply all your needs. So David runs from the tent. He's there in the tabernacle. Then he flees to the place, which is another very curious place to go. He goes to the city of Gath. Look with me in verse 10. David rose, fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. And David also happens to be dragging behind him the sword of Goliath. Not really the greatest PR move, um, but uh, he's not too worried about that. He has nowhere else to turn and he's in desperation. Verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? It's like, what are you doing here in this enemy town? Did they not sing to one another in him in dances? Saul is struck down as thousands and David is ten thousands. What ten thousands is he speaking? He's speaking about all the Philistines that he struck down. And now he finds himself in Gath, one of the capital cities uh, of, the, of, of uh, the Philistines at that time. So verse 12, he's actually captured and he's put in prison. And David took these words to heart and he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And we get this crazy verse here, verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle or spit run down his beard. This is a great story for the five and six-year-olds to be here for today. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you have, set, you have sent me. You see, this man is nuts. He's insane. He's mad. Why then do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this crazy madman to be in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then David escapes. It's literally one of the craziest stories in all the Bible. And I found myself like, how do I preach this, right? You know, it's a strange episode. And I find that my mind reminded me of that um, of Psalm 23, for he, it says, the Bible says in Psalm 23, David writes, he, uh, for you are with me, your rod and your staff come for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. But it's a very strange situation. Again, he's bringing the sword of Goliath. Again, I think he's thinking maybe Saul isn't going to come to the enemy territory. So at least if I go to the enemy territory, there's a chance Saul won't be there. And maybe who knows what God will do. But he's in, uh, he's in the den of lions, you could say. He's in, he's gone to the enemy, he's gone beyond the enemy territory and he's behind enemy lines and he's captured. And you never really know what's gonna happen when you're in a desperate situation. You never know how maybe you're gonna respond in a desperate situation. And it's kind of interesting to consider when we're cornered, when our backs are against the wall, what we're going to do. Uh, there's always those situations that we don't know how we're going to respond. And we don't know what David did or how he responded. So this way, I think we might think, well, this is kind of crazy of him to do this. And yet, what would have you done if you were cornered, you know? <laughs> my wife was telling me a story a few weeks ago about how my cat caught a chipmunk in the garage. Char, you remember this? <laughs> and uh, the chipmunk was in the garage, and my cat was just... As doing cat things, playing with the chipmunk, okay? And all the kids were in there, and it wouldn't go out. And the chipmunk happened to be in the corner of the garage, but the door is really close. My wife comes over. I, of course, was not there, okay? So don't judge me, okay? Some of you are thinking, well, Jordan, why didn't you take care of this? Well, I was at work faithfully serving the Lord, and um, uh, my wife is at home fighting off fierce, rabid chipmunks. And uh, the thing's cornered. She takes the, the broom, 
and she's trying to come over towards the chipmunk, and as she gets close, the chipmunk is cornered and goes nuts. It climbs up the wall and does one of those, like, kick off the wall things and jumps right at her face. She ducks. It lands on her shoulder, crawls down her back, and then jumps off her back out the door. And she was like, of course, of course, my wife, she's not here right now, so that's wonderful. She handled it very, you know, calmly and, and, and the situation. And, and, and Judson <laughs> was there. And, of course, Judson did start crying because she was screaming. Um, it was one of those situations. I was like, I wish I had been there, you know. Not to help, but to watch, you know? Because we all know that would have been awesome. But it was. It was like this. When you corner an animal that is literally at the, its back against the wall, it smells death in the air, what is it going to do? And David responds in a very curious way, maybe in a very human way. He doesn't know what else to do. He literally starts, the Bible says, he literally starts to feign insanity. What he does there is it almost seems as if God gives him a plan, an idea. Here's what you're going to do. I'm going to humble you in some way, David, in this way, but I'm going to save you no matter what. And so I'm going to protect you, even if it's a crazy kind of situation. And so he starts shaking, convulsing, and acting insane. Maybe he starts muttering to himself. This is also a very good like Halloween story for you guys, because it's almost like he turns into this crazy kind of thing. He starts foaming at the mouth like a rabid animal. And then he starts spittle and spit, starts running down his beard, and he's talking. And then he starts scratching at the doorposts and scratching. And, and then he's like rolling around on the ground. And the king of Achish there is like, what is going on? And it's just funny. The king of Achish almost humorously says, do I not have enough crazy people in this kingdom that you bring another one to my doorstep? Get this guy out of here. And so they bring him out of here, even though he's this champion of Israel. They take him out there, and God protects David, even in the most curious and strange situations, is it not? I just find that fascinating. Fascinating that God uses some of the most strange means to rescue his people. And and it's unexpected. It's unknown. We don't, we can never know exactly what God is going to do. And it's fascinating. But David writes Psalm 56, If you go to Psalm 56, you see the subscript under Psalm 56. It is written directly about this situation. It'll say uh, a psalm written when when David changed his behavior uh, in Gath and all of that. And he writes Psalm 57 as well in regards to these situations. But Psalm 56, it says, you have count my tossings, put my tears in the bottle. Are Are they not in your book? That my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. I love it. Tells this in Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know that God is for me. And God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. Verse 11, Psalm 56. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid what man can do to me. Ever heard that phrase? I shall not be afraid what man can do to me. As written about this situation when David was in this literally life-threatening situation. He's surrounded by enemies. He has nowhere else to turn. But he is not afraid what man can do to me. Now, he did say he was afraid until God has rescued him. He knows that he's human. It says he was afraid of the king of Achish. He didn't know what else to do. He changes his behavior. And yet God uses David in that situation and rescues him. And then he writes this psalm just saying, look, <laughs> what am I worried about? How could I ever be in a situation more difficult than that? God got me out even of that. And God, I trust you. I trust you. And sometimes that's just maybe where you need to be today. I don't know where you're at. And just simply saying, I trust you, Lord. It's a lot easier to believe that and just, or, or to say that and not actually believe that. Where's your heart at? That's the question here. Do you actually trust God? Do you actually trust him? What can man do to you? Earlier on in that Psalms, he says, what can flesh do to me? 
What, literally, what can human flesh do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? And so we know that, that when we are in, in God's will, whether we're in the tent of the tabernacle, where, whether we're in the city and the faraway place there, whether we find ourselves in danger, surrounded by enemies, or whether next we find ourselves in a cave by ourselves, God is with you. Look at First uh, Samuel 22, verse 1. David departed. This is the last section here for you, just five verses here. Uh, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, to David, in that cave. And he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Some of you know the storyline. This is the start of his David's mighty men. But verse 3, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, his parents that is. And they stayed with him and all that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. I just want to focus kind of on these first two or three verses there, verses one and two. We see that he goes from the cave and he's kind of here eventually against the cave, the king of Moab, but, but he finds shelter and he writes Psalm 57 about this situation. David escapes, he's alone. I just find this verse very comforting. When I first read through this several times, I skipped right over it. I didn't even notice verse one. What is it that David departs from there and he escapes to the cave of Adullam? He's by himself, you could say. He's feeling very lonely. He's literally just pretended to be insane, okay? And now he finds himself in a cave. And yet I find God to be very gracious and merciful in this situation. They know, maybe you know, you know what it's like to be in a situation like this. You feel alone. What is it that God does? He sends him family and friends. Look at, look at verse 1. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. It's just a little phrase. And yet it's so significant. God knows where you're at and he knows what you need. He's not going to leave you on an island by yourself. David feels like he's all by himself. And yet God provides family to comfort him and encourage him. He sends newfound friends that he's never met before. A ragtag bunch of misfits that he's like, who are these guys that God is sending me? And God is going to use them and transform them into a fighting force because David is going to be a commander over them. God supplies him with his needs and he comforts him with his internal fears that he has. He comforts those fears and he makes confidence, he brings courage and confidence out of them. Sends family and friends to help. I know I, I know personally there's times in life when it's not true, but you feel alone, you know. And I can think back on two, maybe three situations over the last couple of years where you feel like you're in the cave. <laughs> you feel like nobody understands or knows, and maybe that's you today. And I can think of, as we talked about last week, Jonathan and David and the importance of friendship. I can think on, on, on two or three incidents where God sent a friend. God sent a phone call. God sent a lunch meeting. And encourages your soul. <laughs> where, where you feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't, I'm at wit's end. Maybe I'm insane or maybe I'm acting insane right now. Maybe you've been there, right? 
and someone God brings into your life to bring encouragement. Maybe you need to be that person for someone today. You need to be that person God is going to use to encourage someone to be a friend in need. way Because you know your friend's in the cave right now. Or maybe you find yourself in the cave. You need to trust in God and pray to him for help because he will supply your needs and you will find no lack if you fear God. That's what we find in this passage is so vitally important. Because I think, as I've been learning, as I've been thinking through this, it's not so much where we are that matters. It's, it's who is with us that makes all the difference. It's not like, oh, I find myself in the tent, I find myself in the cave, I find myself in the enemy's city, I find myself in comfort and ease. It's, it's not so much where we are, but who is with us. It didn't matter what David was. It didn't matter who he was facing. It didn't matter what enemy or Goliath or whatever was in front of him. It mattered that God was with him. Do you remember the last couple of weeks? That was the phrase repeated over and over and over and over and over. God is with David. God is with you. He will protect you. He will guide you. He will provide shelter for you. And so what I want us to do is, is consider this last psalm, Psalm 57. Psalm 57 verse 1 says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. This is, David writes this when he was in the cave. There is another situation when he finds himself in a cave later on in three chapters from now, I think it is. But we, this first instance, many believe that he wrote Psalm 57 speaking about this one, the first cave incident. And so he writes this, be merciful to me, O God, uh, be merciful to me. In you, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your rings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I want us to, the booth to throw up that final graphic here that helps us think through all that we've just walked through. Right, there's a way to just think about what we've just talked through. We, we recognize from this that there is a place that you might find yourself in. David found himself in the tent, in the city, in the cave. He found himself up against King Saul, king of Gath, and we looked at king of Moab. We're going to actually talk about that more next week. He finds him out against an enemy, and yet God is with him every step of the way. He gives him supply there in the tent. He gives him a sword and bread, and he meets his needs. He saves him, even in the middle of when he's surrounded by his enemies. It's almost like he, he prepares a table before his enemies. He gives and helps him in that situation. And then he provides shelter for him in the cave. And in the shelter, he provides protection, but also encouragement. We see he writes, he says, taste that the Lord is good. Taste that bread in my mouth. That is as if God is feeding me directly. Thank you, Lord. You are good. Then he says in Psalm 56, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid what, God, what man can do to me. And then in the close, he ends with this. In this cave, I find shelter, protection, for it is in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. It's in this thought process that I think is so important for us to grasp. That this, yes, is a story, this is a narrative, but what does it have to do with me? It has a great deal to do with us today. That when we recognize that God is good and we can recognize that when he's good, what can man do to me? And then when I trust him and give him my life, I can find myself in a cave and I know that he is like a, like a mother hen. He is protecting his chicks. In the shadow of your wings, I find refuge, safety. I find my life because God is supplying all my needs. He will shelter me. He will protect me. He's my stronghold. He's my refuge. These are the things that we ought to believe in a life like today. For life can be chaotic. It can be confusing. Today's economy is up and down. 
Who knows what's going to happen with the next election? Who knows what's going to happen with the next disaster? Who knows with all of these things that are constantly churning up in our lives? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your workplace environment. Maybe it's just simply you're trying to pay the next bill. It's these kinds of life situations where we're forced to say, say internally. We're forced to look down deep and we're forced to say, what's in my heart? Do I trust him? It's one thing to live outwardly and come to church. It's another to say, in my heart, I believe you. I trust you. I'm going to give my life to you. And just like you protected David, just like you walked with him through life, though he did encounter challenge after challenge, things were not easy, but God was with him every step of the way. He is with you today. And if you leave here today, and that's all you get, that God is with you, as he says, God is for you, and he loves you. And <laughs> that is enough for me to face that bill that's coming in the mail, to face that situation at work that you're dreading, to face that dispute in your marriage that you see, uh, how is this going to come out good? How can this work out? We know that those who follow the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, they will have no lack. Trust him. Believe him. Give your life to him. He will bless you with these things. He will answer your prayers. He will, he will follow you. And yes, that situation may not always be the way you want it to work out, but we know that in the end, in the shadow of his wings, we can find safety and protection. And I pray that you find that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth and the reminder of who you are. Life, God, comes at us fast, and yet it does not come like that for you. You're in control. We praise you today. We know that you are powerful and you are working in mighty ways even in our midst and even in our lives personally. I pray, Lord, you'd use these texts of scripture to speak to these people today. Lord, you love them. You've brought them here today. You care about them. Protect them. As we say often, bless them. Keep them. Make your face shine upon them. As you had did for David, as you have done for us in the past. Like that Goliath sword, that reminder of how you have won victory in the past. Lord, give us that today that reminds us that you have worked in the past. You are still alive presently. You're coming again one day to resurrect us to be with you. Lord, we pray for that and know that you are alive and well. Give us these truths. Confirm and, and strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.